0: Let's turn to Genesis 45, 45, beginning to read in 25. So the brothers went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and the sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt." Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah but Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Paris were Hezron and Hamul, and the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Jov, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Seret, Elon, and Yale, Yale, Yaleel, excuse me, Yaleel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padanaram. together with his daughter Dinah, together his sons and his daughters numbered 33 the sons of Gad, Zephion, Hagi, Shuni, Esbon, Ari, Arodi, and Areli, the sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Berea, and Sarah, their sister, and the sons of Berea, Heber and Malkiel. These are the sons of Silpa, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin, and to Joseph, and in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Beker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupim, Hupim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. And the sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Yazael, Guni, Jezer, and Shillem; these are the sons of Bilha, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's wives, sons' wives, and uh, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, you may have some questions about these numbers. I think that we can best address this later on in the question and answer section. I intended not to uh, bother you in this um, presentation tonight. Well, I want to begin by saying that um, here in this part of the often is a need of uh, stealing. That is, um, we think that we are strong we think that we are mature Christians, but let something unexpected come our way. It's something that we didn't see coming. And then you see the drama and the angst of which Solomon once spoke, saying, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Now, Jacob sees the chariots that Joseph has sent along with the gifts from Egypt And there were some really nice things among all those. And he hears the word of Joseph that he is still alive and that he is, in fact, ruler of all Egypt. And at first, he cannot believe it. You have to understand, Jacob is not a happy camper. He is what you might consider slightly bitter. He is slightly bitter because of all the hardship that he has seen. And if you talk to him about Joseph, any word any mention of his name, you would see a shadow fall across his face. Such was Jacob, and this uh, does not reflect upon his character. This is human nature. He bore a heavy burden, and he had a history that um, he could not shake. But eventually, when he sees all this, he sees the evidence, tangible evidence, his heart Revives, And he says, enough, I'm going to see Joseph, I'm going to see my son Joseph, I will go to Egypt. But this is easier said than done. Moving a clan of several hundred people, and there were at least three, four hundred of them, with kid and caboodle. Through a desert across a distance of more or less 400 miles is not a walk in the park. It would take well over a month. And it raised so many questions. So now Jacob arrives in Beersheba. If you look at your map of the land of Canaan, Beersheba is on the southern edge of the land of Canaan. South of it, desert. And then also to the southwest of it, desert. This is the way that leads to Egypt. This is the place, too, Beersheba, where Isaac had pitched his tents. In fact, it is in Beersheba that um, uh, Jacob spent his childhood. And it is also from this place, Beersheba, was therefore a very familiar place to Jacob, that he once departed, being chased by his angry brother on account of his trickery. Should he now leave home again? Should he now turn a traveling man again? Jacob, you can be sure, Jacob had settled for a life living in a tent, a life of relative leisure, the last thing that was on his mind was to go down to Egypt, to a foreign place and away from the promised land, a place that, for lack of a better term, although he didn't own it, it had become his home. He was an old man, not like you. He was 130 years old. His own profession will be that few and evil have those days been, but for our standards, he has seen a lot. And he is not at all eager to go down to Egypt, even though he knows he must see his son. And so the narrator is keen to point out that in this situation, here in Beersheba, on the southern edge of the land, a place of history, a place that means something to him personally, he feels the need to connect with God. He worships the God of his fathers, as the narrator says. And here, God promptly answers in visions of the night, probably that very night. God came to him in a vision, and this is how he introduces himself I am God. I am the God of your father. You see, this is what the narrator has just said. He called upon the God of his father, and now God, having heard him, knowing what he faced, he says, I am the God of your father. I am the very same God. And... He thus affirms God's calling of Jacob and of his family as the catalyst of God's promises and his plan of redemption. God made a covenant with Abram and he gave him promises and he renewed the covenant to Isaac. And he now confirms the covenant yet again to Jacob in yet another very, very momentous situation A historical moment, not only in the history of Jacob's life, but you may well say in the history of God's people of the Old Testament. And this is one thing that I love about this text. God never wastes any time. God wastes no time here in cutting to the chase, in addressing exactly what needed to be addressed, saying exactly what needed to to be said, because he knew exactly how Jacob felt at the start of a perilous journey across desert terrain. And he knew exactly what it was that he needed more, more than his daily bread for the trek to Egypt. This is what he said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For Jacob isn't singing to himself. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool (laughs) when you're hitting the road. No, he is not singing or chanting to himself. He's been there on the road. He knows what it's like. And he has no illusions, no romantic illusions about hitting the road yet again. It's the last thing that he wants. Now, you know that Jacob knew that he does not want to leave this place because Jacob is a believer. You could never take this away from him. He believes God's promises. And for all of his weaknesses and faults, he knows, he believes at this place that has now become home to him, Canaan, this place is where his family's future must lie. That's what God said. So why leave? Why leave this behind? Now, you know there are restless people. And maybe you are one of them. Restless people whose heart is filled with a certain longing for traveling and for wandering like migrating birds. They, they, they take off to a place that they've never seen, driven by an urge that defies explanation. And some are running away from something. And some are searching for a holy grail. And some people do both at the same time. But not so Jacob. Old Jacob will have nothing of this. He has no romantic illusions of visiting foreign lands and places. If he ever had them, he does not anymore. He's like a child now in his old age. Rather, like a child, he's afraid of the dark. He's afraid of the dark. That is the uncertainty that lies ahead, the darkness. You know what it is like when you get up in the middle of the night and you walk towards the toilet and there is darkness. Sometimes you have the presence of mind to turn on the light but if you don't do this, you walk into a very dark place. And in a time when you don't do well or you're troubled, you may think that there are things lurking in the darkness. In any case, He is afraid of the dark, of the uncertainty of this trip. Second, he is scared of a fall. Not long ago, I fell, stumbling over my own feet, fainting, and I fell on my head in the dark. He is scared of a fall, and that is the risk of concrete evil, not the uncertainty that looms ahead, but concrete evil that might meet him and his people on the way. And then number three, and this for me is the greatest fear of all three, a fear that we all know, the fear of never being able to find your way home never being able to return, reaching the point of no return, and then having to linger in some place where you do not want to be. Because as I said, Jacob knows that the future of the clan lies in Canaan and not In Egypt, yes, it feels like he is turning his back on the promise of God and leaving Beersheba in the direction of Egypt. And this is why he seeks God here on the edge of the promised land at the beginning of this perilous journey. And by the way, in seeking God, you have to give him this credit too. He displays a very different attitude than his father Abram who once, also in a time of severe famine, simply took off. He took off and left for Egypt, and you know the story of what came of it and what he did there in Genesis 12, 10 following. And it is also because of this that God encourages Jacob, saying, don't be afraid to go. Now, God gives three reasons why he shouldn't be. And these three reasons address precisely the three fears that we have identified so far. So one, Jacob sees a great void stretched out in front of him. He's afraid of the dark, afraid of the uncertainty of such a momentous move. But God says to answer this fear, Don't you know, it is in Egypt that I will make you into a great nation. Yes, yes, you're right. This is the promise to the fathers from the very beginning. That is what Abram heard from the mouth of God. I will make you into a great nation. And as early as 1513 following, when God also at nighttime made a covenant with Abram, God told him, this is already in the books. When he said to him, know for certain, you can bet on this, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But after that, I will punish that nation and I will bring them out with great possessions. In God's providence, Israel must become a nation. They are a clan and quite sizable, but they're not a nation. A couple of hundred people don't make a nation. In God's providence, they must become a nation in a foreign land. Interesting, isn't it? You grow best, you grow most in a place where you may not want to be. And sometimes, dare I say, more often than you would like, God may put you in a place where you don't want to be, in a situation where you don't want to find yourself. But this clan must become a nation In Egypt, in a foreign land, and not in Canaan, in the promised land. And this is necessary. In God's own thinking, in God's economy, as some people say, in God's plan, this is necessary. It has to be so, because the history of Israel as the people of the Exodus, a people who are wandering and who are pilgrims and sojourners, it was to be continued, This was not the last journey that God's people would take. And it wouldn't be the greatest either. In fact, its definitive expression on the Old Testament side of the cross was yet to come. And it was hundreds of years out. And you know that they, Israel, or shall I say God, God has bequeathed this legacy to us never get too comfortable, never get you too used to it. We are strangers and pilgrims in the world. And so, if you are willing to embrace God's ways, then you can say, you can see, in fact, you can see that nothing was lost in going to Egypt, but everything to be gained. We say God works in mysterious ways. The words, they cross your lips easily. But do you really believe it? Are you willing to stake your life on it? So nothing was lost, but everything to be gained. And God always makes it look as though that's a loser. That won't work. That ain't good. How can this be? But the move to Egypt, you know this, it was a move toward fulfillment of God's promise. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, and his wisdom is um, probably ranging among the best of all Christian writers in the 20th and 21st century, he says, where the word of home is with me. I will find my way in foreign lands. Where the word of God is with me, I will find my way in foreign lands. Jacob needed a reminder, and we also need this. That is, that God isn't tied to one locality, God isn't tied to one place. For as much as we are people who wander in this world, we're not home here. Nowhere are we home. We are also a people of his word. The word has made us. The word is responsible for creating the church and for every individual believer. It is the word who has made us. And so we are a people of the word, not only wandering people, and his word remains with us. That is what God gives us. On the way, uncertainty, a great void stretches out in front of you, but you must fill the great void with God's word and take courage. And this leads straight to the second reason the Lord offers to Jacob. First, God says, don't you know it is in Egypt that I will make you into a nation? Now, let me do it. You go and I'll do it. And now he says, I myself, I will go down with you to Egypt. You see, Jacob wasn't finished with seeing the great void of uncertainty and eventually came to the conclusion, "Ah, enough, no more of this. No, he wasn't finished with seeing the great void Or being afraid of the dark. He began to fill the great void. But not with God's promise. Not with God's word. Or with assurance. He filled it. As we all do. With all kinds of terrifying scenarios. What if? Yeah. What if you get sick? Or what if the clan falls sick? And there is an epidemic? Or what if we get raided? And they kill. What if, what if, what if, what if? And when you begin to walk down that trail, even far-fetched and remote and perhaps even absurd scenarios begin to take shape as though this is what will happen Now, sure, all kinds of things are within the realm of possibilities. It's a vast realm that is able to include and incorporate all kinds of scenario. So many things are possible. But have we considered that only one thing will be? Not many. History also will never be repeated or rerun. There's only one thing. And there's only one God. And so many of those possibilities that we conjure, the Germans have a way of referring to this. I don't know whether you've heard this, uh, or we say this, conjure the devil. When, when you conjure the fears and the scenarios that might obtain, or the things that might happen along the way, you conjure the devil. But so many of those possibilities, they're only puppets. They don't even have life. They only are given life because you choose to. It's your work. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit. Or maybe the work of someone even more sinister. One thing is sure, and we know this, when we tell ourselves, when we teach ourselves to be afraid, we immobilize and we paralyze us. And that is the work of the devil. Because that is where he wants us. And you need to be reminded that you're not alone in the world. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and know, well, it is not the concept of God. It's not the theology of God. It's not the thought of God that goes. I myself, in person, I will go with you, and I will be with you until the end. And wrapped into these words, you can hear the so-called Emmanuel principle, the Emmanuel principle that God is with us, the pledge that God will be your God and will be with you as your God, the most rudimentary promise of the covenant of grace that moves through the entire Bible from beginning to end. From one historical phase to the next, from one installment and one chapter to the next, all the way to the conclusion where you will read, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more." Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You are asked to say yes to God. You are asked to say yes to his promise and trust that God uses all your circumstances. Because if God promises things like this, then that was—that that is precisely what must happen. He must use all your circumstances as he uses your gifts and your efforts. And he isn't asking us to prophesy or to be clairvoyant. He isn't asking us to judge whether we are worthy of this thing. He isn't asking us whether we have the correct skill set because we probably don't. He's asking us to acknowledge that he is sufficient and that's all, that is enough for the challenges ahead. God will use your simple yes your willingness and your desire to serve and to face your future let us say yes and leave the rest to the one who knows anything less falls short of god's glory because it says then you are not in control you are not in control no one to say this we don't want to think this. And we don't want to get stuck with this theology. And the final reason that God gives to answer the three fears is this one. I will make you into a great nation, one. And I will go down with you, too. And I will also bring you back. I will bring you up again. Because... God reads our thoughts. what if I go and I never find my way back home? Like Hansel and Gretel, I don't want to be like Hansel and Gretel in the deep, dark forest. I don't want to be like someone who drops LSD and fries his brain, never able to come back or to be sane again. I don't want to be. And the last thing, of course, the last thing we need is fear of not finding our way home. God is here to assure you, I will. I will bring you home. Listen to me. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. Carrying and bearing is also the language of the Exodus, where God bore Israel on eagles' wings through the desert. And not only will God see to that Jacob's bones will return, and be buried with his fathers in the promised land. And in that sense, he would be brought up again. But he will also bring back all of Israel out of Egypt in his own time. And this list of 70, about which we could say much more, that concludes our reading, it must be seen in this light. In essence, it says that When God spoke this word, and Jacob heard this word, and he took it to heart, he said, All right, I will say to you, I don't like this, but we're all in, and all eggs in one basket. God's promise is not only of a nation, but it remains tied to a land. Israel's future lies in Canaan. And not in Egypt. So there will be a homecoming of all who are called as surely as Jesus came down from heaven, walked the earth and left the earth and went back home, home up to heaven. This, this odyssey of the Son of God describes a perfect parabola. And it is so perfect because it also has dimension. He starts from here and he gets to the lowest point. But there is no point from which God can't bring you back. No place from which God cannot call you home. And he will. And our destiny, it remains tied to a new heaven and a new earth. A land without which God's plan remains unfinished business. And there can be no unfinished business with God. We will have a land to dwell in, called home in the truest sense of the word, the kingdom of God where righteousness dwells forever. And God who promises will do it. And here's the reason why we are strangers and pilgrims, not unlike Jacob. We desire a better country. It makes no difference where you are. You can't remain here. You can't remain there or over there. We desire a better country, a heavenly one, and God isn't ashamed to be called our God because we share the faith of our fathers, and God has never disappointed any one of them, and He will never deny His Son. He has prepared a city for us. Yes, life can be a riddle, and God may take you down roads that you haven't known. In fact, you can bet on that. He will. He will take you down roads that you have not known. But his plan never fails. That's why, as we said this morning, his joy is unhindered. It's not hindered by our circumstances. If we could only take a little page out of God's book, That's why Paul can say, rejoice in the Lord. Again I say, now rejoice. Always rejoice in the Lord. Take a page out of his book. His joy is unhindered because he knows what he is doing. His plan is perfect. He will carry it out. He knows how all of the pieces of the mosaic fit together. And eventually the picture will emerge. Maybe you can see a little bit of it by only trusting. Trusting him a little more, a little longer. Are you afraid of not finding your way? Well, so am I. Are you afraid of not being able to come home? At times we are. Home is where your heart is. And I think that that's the most important question that you and I need to answer before God and to ourselves. Home is where the heart is. And if your heart is invested in Christ, home is waiting for you. What do you think? you think that it is possible that after all that Jesus has done, he's not going to see this through? Home is where your heart is, and if your heart is invested in Christ, home is waiting for you with your name on a throne next to Jesus Christ's own throne. And the world that we have here is only a cloud. It's a thin film, a thin veneer, And behind it is hiding eternity. Take courage. God will make you prosper wherever you are. And he will go with you. And he will bring you home at last. And so I deeply appreciate how God cuts to the chase. Cuts to the chase in his night visions And addresses Jacob's fear to leave familiar places, familiar situations. He cuts to the chase and says, don't be afraid. The Son of God left the realm of light, and we all know where his path took him. To a place that, according to Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, is spiritually called Egypt. Egypt and Sodom for that matter. No, in all our fears and all our worries about tomorrow or what is coming, the great void or the concrete evil that might befall us, we can drop every facade before Jesus. We don't need to convince. We don't need to present something to him. You're free from the urge to impress. Take it all to him. Let's be free, as we were meant to be, in the freedom that Christ has won for us. The Lord is near. That doesn't mean He is about to come. That may be the case, but he is near, near, here. Do you hear? He is near. And so, don't be anxious, knowing the impulse to be. Don't be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And sometimes I find it also takes a little courage, just a little courage to let yourself be seen by him in a quiet place, without any facade, without any pretense. And I've learned that you don't want to look too long and too hard into the mirror, I'm not saying don't, but don't do it too long and don't do it too hard. Because the eyes through which you look at yourself as you look in the mirror and behold your own likeness, they are not the eyes that give you the best treatment and they are not the eyes that promise the very best. They can't. Your Heavenly Father sees right through you. With well meaning eyes, understanding all your needs perfectly, and He sees you wrapped in His Son's righteousness. You have nothing to fear, nothing to hide. And God, who always sees what is hidden, knows what we need, even though we do not. <sighs> we know what we want, we're good at that, or well, we are not so good at seeing or wanting what we need. But this is certain. Whether we get what we desire or not, we cannot live, we cannot prosper, and we cannot take one step forward without the calm peace of God. So let's pursue it. Under all circumstances, let his unconditional attention for you, unconditional attention for you, Ripen in your life. Under his loving gaze, he sees, he knows what you need. And honor him, honor him. Letting him be your God, whatever he asks you to do, whatever he asks you or calls you to do, wherever he leads you. Good night. Father in heaven, we are a people of a very cushy faith, as we said, a faith that um, assumes so many things but does not take enough time to look at you and to sit in your presence and to endure your calm and loving gaze. So much is at stake. But as we have heard many times before, he is not a fool who loses what he cannot keep in order to gain what he can never lose. You have promised. You will do it. You are faithful, even when we are not. So can we not trust you more? Can we not look and wait to see? And in the meanwhile, seek the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Now, Father, if you help us, that's what we will do in Jesus. Amen.